0: Well, it, it looks like McDonald's is going to connect up with Google to use AI in their restaurants to make the French fries hotter, I guess, and to make the ordering a lot easier. I don't know if you've been into a McDonald's in the United States in the last couple of years, but you walk in and there's almost no humans there. And they got these big touchscreen boards and they are the most counterintuitive machines in the world. I would like to have a soda. I got to press, 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 press. <laughs> They make it really difficult. So evidently, they're going to put AI to use with Google to make that better, and pretty soon it'll be in Australia. It's not, Mac- it's not McDonald's there though, Alan. It's Mac. It's Macca's. Is that what it is? Really?
1: Yeah, it's roughly, roughly right. Macca's.
0: If all of all the things we've seen AI being used for, I swear every day there's a new whiz bang thing that's going to save the world, but none of them seem really action oriented and touchable. Right? You can. You're gonna see something from
2: AI. Alan, I'm surprised it's not hydrogen powered. Hydrogen powered French fryers.
0: Well, maybe Google will put their servers in the bases of wind turbines just to make everybody happy. How about that? There's a new article by Bloomberg News talking about wind turbine technicians, and and that has generated a lot of noise on LinkedIn on, on the web also. Uh, and the, the data in that article kind of goes like this. Uh, wind turbine technicians are, are projected to grow about 45 percent, not the technicians themselves, but the employment opportunities. Uh, and it's faster than a lot of other occupations obviously, because there's so much energy going into creating wind turbines across the United States, onshore and offshore, there's a lot of demand for it. Uh, and some of the, the highlights from that article are, wind turbine technicians can make about $80,000 without a college degree, uh, but you have to be willing to travel. And there are wind turbines in 44 states at the, at the moment, and entry-level roles are about $50,000 plus overtime and travel pay. And in a, within a, about a year, you can get trained up enough to be working in the field. Now, uh, this has subsequently sent a lot of people to our WeatherGuard website because we have some information about being a wind turbine technician. So in the last 24 to 48 hours, I think I've seen 20 requests uh, to be a wind turbine technician and where can they find some information. Uh, and I I want to highlight here while we're on the podcast, like, hey, go to the job boards, go to monster.com, check out your local community college. Joel, you know this, uh, that uh, there are a lot of training programs and opportunities out there. You just need to look a little bit.
3: Yeah, we did look, uh, not too long ago, Alan and I, we were just kind of having a conversation looking at a DOE, I think it was DOE or De- Department of Energy or 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 another resource from the federal government where they actually had a map of kind of how... Uh, a wind energy career could look like depending on what wh- how you came into it. if you came into it through a university or if you came in through a technical college or community college or a training center and it kind of gave you all the different career paths and it's it's not just technicians that we need of course we need technicians yes but the the entire industry is is hurting for people to the point where you know like as the, on the uptime podcast here we talk to a lot of companies a lot of the companies that are making products for the wind industry, whether they're in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in India or wherever else they are, the new innovative products, solutions, software, hardware, whatever it may be, are almost all getting to be geared towards alleviating the technician shortage, right? They're trying to make things easier in the field. We talked to someone that does is doing a, has kind of a new SCADA platform that has a an idea of how to make it easier for a technician to learn to troubleshoot things. So that's fantastic. I mean, we talked with... Was it Echo Bolt? You know what I mean? Like uh all these different little tools that make things easier because of the technician scaling problem. So this to me looks like ah, 10 years ago, five, ten years ago. And this is still a shortage we have in the United States of nurses, right? It was always like, we need nurses, we need nurses, we need nurses. Same thing. And it took a little bit of time for that to kind of catch. I know I know a lot of people that I grew up with went into nursing school. And even now there's still a shortage of nurses, but at least there's a lot of people that are that are chasing that avenue. And and hopefully we can do our little bit of a part to get a little bit of a word out here. And um, what we'd really like to see is people going to some of these training centers um, and getting getting some skills and getting out into the field.
0: Yeah, because pretty much any uh, ISP independent service provider has a training system. Rangel Renewables does, right? And we've talked to a number of other uh, companies like Rangel that, that do train technicians. So you don't have to have the skill set to work on a wind turbine, as long as you have some basic electrical mechanical skills, they will train you up for the rest of it. So it's a, you just got to reach out, right? I think that's the key is reach out to, to them, go on LinkedIn, go on the job sites, and you'll find plenty of opportunities right now. Every service provider, even some of the OEMs are hiring right now, and it's pretty hard to miss those opportunities. So now is the time. Great time of the year as well, because people are starting to Build, build their rosters for spring to kick off. Well, let's talk about one of the big OEMs. Vestas has received the type certification from DNV on the V236 15-megawatt offshore turbine. They, that turbine is using and half meter long blades. Holy cow. And it's designed for uh, a place like the North Sea off the coast of the U.S. and maybe over even in China. Uh, it has a low cut-in speed, Rosemary, three meters per second. And a cutout speed at 31 meters a second. So those are that's a pretty wide range. Yeah, it's very broad.
1: Isn't that a really high cutout speed?
0: I think so too. Yes.
1: I saw an article recently, someone um tagged me on LinkedIn this article that was about um uh you know some record being broken from um a wind turbine. It was, I was think it was a sixteen megawatt wind turbine operating at rated capacity for a whole twenty four hour period, basically. And I said, "Well, yeah, okay, it's the world's largest wind turbine, and it operated at rated capacity for one day. Therefore, obviously, it was going to break the one day record. Like it's just a logical conclusion of the the fact. The article was like, and the turbine does this, 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 and this, and like th- those are all the same thing. That's that's one exciting thing that you've just you know." um just just written a whole article restating that basically and um yeah it was a bit of a a linkedin argument because someone's like oh yeah you're such a party pooper like i bet that you would go watch the you know 100 meters final at the olympics and say oh what's the big deal they're just moving their legs really fast like well yeah okay but you, you you know like it's one it's one cool thing that can run 100 meters fast, you don't then say, oh my God, they also broke the world record for 90 meters and, you know, 91 meters and 92 meters. It would be the same kind of thing, you know, like it all it all follows. But anyway, I, I digress because one of the um other claims of the article was that, oh, and this, you know, revolutionary new wind turbine can survive um a hurricane or, you know, whatever kind of storm it was. And I looked up the the wind speed, the rated wind speed. I'm like, that is just a very normal um cut out yeah rated wind speed and cut out wind speed all very normal but it's in the 20s um so this one couldn't you legitimately say this is like a storm proof wind turbine I, I just think that that's um yeah higher cut out speed than than normal i mean not every storm i'm not saying that there's not a storm on earth that could destroy it but it's um it, it it's clearly rated to you know certified to withstand stronger winds than your average wind turbine let's let's say that I don't want to be the one that you know is getting all hyperbolic now and um <laughs> you know about about a wind turbine but you know this is this is a, a robust sturdy wind turbine by the looks of it as well as being huge
0: so how do they get to the 31 meters a second is it because they have more pitch
1: no I mean every wind turbine can pitch all the way around um that it, it, it's normal that you would pitch to make the, the the minimum aerodynamic load. It'll be just a stronger, it'll be a stronger blade um, and stronger bearings and stronger, you know, like every everything that it's attached to, it has to be stronger all the way down, stronger um, yeah, foundation as, as well. The certification standards require that it can withstand a maximum gust wind speed and that the turbine doesn't get to decide, the turbine manufacturer doesn't get to decide what that is. But that's not the operational cutout. That is up to the um, the, the turbine manufacturer to decide. At what point do we um, say you can't generate power anymore? You have to just yeah feather your blades and um, pinwheel probably, and you know ride out the storm without falling over, but not generating power anymore. And this turbine is generating yeah up up higher. And I mean, there's good good power to be um to be got from those high wind speeds. So. If you're in an area with a lot of storms, then I think that that would make a, you know, you'd see more annual energy production from having the higher cutout wind speed.
2: And they they are too, because keep in mind what markets this was also designed for, not just the North Sea, um, but also Taiwan, where they also have, you know, some some pretty, um, you know, strong typhoon winds and, and stuff like that uh, during different parts of the year um they're in also intending to use this uh quite a bit in brazil um if brazil is ever going to be a market i guess um <laughs> potentially colombia as well so um there are and and both brazil and colombia um you know if you're familiar with the the region i mean the reason why people are actually excited about brazil's offshore wind market is because even if you just look at their onshore Um, wind in like Rio Grande Norte and, and, um, that kind of area of the country, if you go offshore, you have very, very low turbulence and you have very high sustained winds. And I mean, it's a, you know, it's a turbine designer's dream. It's an operator's dream out there. Um, so, you know, the, the turbine is, is kind of perfectly designed for, for that type of application.
3: So I found the numbers now, and Rosemary, I completely agree with you. This thing is, this, this uh, Vesta's V236 is going to be super robust to be able to regularly run in those high wind speeds. In the IEC standard, the highest wind class is 1A, which is 10 meters per second, annual average wind speed at hub height or the extreme 50-year gust is 160 miles per hour. That's the, highest, that's the highest rated one. Now, if I'm switching to my other screen, and I'm going to go to the Saffir-Simpson, and I'm going to say that wrong, Saffir-Saffir-Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale. This is from the, uh, the government of the U.S., National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Their Class 5 is a you know, major sustained winds is 157 miles per hour or higher. So a class five hurricane is sustained at the same speed that is a class one, a wind turbine at a 50 year gust is the max. So that's why I worry about if we just put these same types of turbines in the Gulf of Mexico, that some morning we're going to wake up with a beach full of fiberglass.
0: Yeah. The Gulf of Mexico is not the right place for this, but along the Atlantic coastline, it would be in the U S the hurricanes don't tend to be fours and fives, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia up—they're—they're they're two threes generally, right? So it, it'd be a good place there. Yeah, cold water. Right, it loses energy there. It's cold. But this, all right. So, and what's the 115 meter blade, mean Rosemary? Is that like uh, a super difficult blade to build because of its length, or is it a two piece? Is it a two piece or one piece? I assume it's one piece.
1: Yeah, I assume it's it's one piece. I don't know if any of the really long blades that are the two pieces. The two piece blades are all in the um, yeah, the sixties, seventies meters sort of length. Um, yeah, I mean for offshore wind, you don't have that same issue with transport, right? You make your blade factory right next to a port, and then you put it on a, a ship, and away it goes. It never needs to go under a bridge or around a corner or anything. Um, so it's not such a big deal, and the you, you know the Blade structure is so important, so you would really struggle to put a, a split in there somewhere and make it strong enough to withstand a yeah, 31 metres per second um, storm. Um, but the blade length, it, I, I mean, it, it's super-duper ridiculously long, um, so let's not uh, downgrade it. Uh, you know, these long, really long wind turbine blades, they're the largest single piece uh, man-made structure anywhere. You know, there's no part of a bridge that is bigger than a, a wind turbine blade or, you know, part of a a building, uh, a skyscraper even, you know, so yes, they're gigantic. However, they're not these aren't the longest blades in the world. There are people up, you know, in the 120s or at least they've got, you know, paper designs and um blade molds for that length. Uh, I haven't I'm not sure that they've actually installed turbines with 120 something meter blades, although maybe they have and I missed it. Um yeah, so super long, but not, not world record breaking.
0: How many turbines do they have to sell before they break even on that particular design? Is there a rough number? It's usually about three
2: hundred, Alan, for something that big. When you when you consider like all the non recurring engineering, um, plus all their like supply chain startup costs and stuff like that, I normally when we've done that type of analysis for companies in the past, it comes out to be about three hundred units. Um, now, that said, that was also at commodity prices that were a lot cheaper relative to turbine size, um, you know, a few years back, so we could be talking about 350 to 400 units. That said, I'm actually looking at our Intel Store data platform, and based on um, both kind of uh, un unconfirmed um, orders and stuff that's probably in negotiation and again hasn't hasn't actually been formally publicly announced yet. There's actually a total of about 95 gigawatts or about 6,300 units where these turbines could be used. But again, a lot of these also include like a, a overwhelming majority of that is actually in Brazil where they just use the Festus V uh, 236 as a placeholder um, for their, uh, permitting application. So you're saying 6,300 that are, that could go into actual permitted areas that exist right now. If these become firm orders. So again, keep in mind that all of this is just, you know, again, in our, uh, project database where we track everything into the future, you know, as far out as, uh, governments have, have kind of publicly reported. Um, you know, data that's uh, for projects that are in the consenting queue. Uh anybody who's utilized the Vestas V236 as their kind of quote-unquote kind of placeholder turbine. Um, and this includes. So I'm looking at the the countries we've got. Um, you know, Denmark, Germany, uh, Italy, Poland, the U.S., uh, Taiwan, South Korea, et cetera. There's markets all over the world where you know these turbines could be used in project sites. Um. But again, we're, you know, 95 gigawatts is a big number, and that's also out towards like 20, you know, 35, 2040, uh, kind of a time frame. None of that I don't think has been firmed up yet. I think they only have one firm order so far for the, or maybe two firm orders in Europe so far for the 236. Um, so just keep that in mind as as we talk about it. Um, but I mean, this, this could, I mean, to be blunt, like we're actually projecting that Vestas will overtake Siemens Gamesa in offshore market share, um, at some point in the future because of this turbine and, and any derivatives of, of this turbine platform. So, um, this is a, you know, the fact that they got it certified, uh, I think you're going to see more deals become formally announced, um, in the near term. Especially again in the U.S., you know, some of the projects where they were kind of lined up as as the preferred, um, you know, turbine vendor. Some of those projects are going through some of the uh, you know uh, re uh, resubmittals uh, at this point of their um, you know their their power offtake uh, contract requests, and they're going to have to retender. Uh, some are going to be for newer projects. Um, keep in mind also, Vestas has a a pretty big, uh, desire to have a a big footprint in a market like Australia, where they're really starting to get their act together now. I think they've got something like 36 gigawatts, um, according to the latest estimate we've got, um, of projects in the, you know, the permitting and consent queue, uh, down there at this point. So, you know, that's the, There's pretty big global opportunity for this turbine.
0: Yeah, but Phil and Rosemary, the the turbines are so big, how many can they possibly produce in a single year? A hundred? A hundred seems like a lot. Maybe, but how
2: much money you got? Because, you know, yes, there are um, diminishing returns in terms of, like, maximum, you know, factory capacity, but at the end of the day, I mean, if they are going to get firm orders. You know, I could see them putting up a dedicated factory in Australia. I could see them putting in a factory in South Korea, definitely see them putting a factory in Brazil. Um, and they'll continue to supply throughout Europe from, from Denmark. So, you know, yeah. And, and I think they're, they're even looking at Taiwan at this point, but you know, they're they're not going to sell any of them in China um, unless something dramatically changes at this point. But yeah, I mean they they could they could establish a, a decent amount of of annual manufacturing capacity. A single factory could actually churn out about two hundred units a year if they if they designed and built it right.
0: Yeah, and and on the blade side, you would have to make about a say it's three hundred units to to break even, right? So you're going to make about a thousand blades before. The company starts to see any sort of revenue return. A thousand blades. Do you really? At that point, you you kind of have to commit, right? A thousand blades, and then you can figure out how the well the blades are performing. Is that a real risk, right? Uh, because of the time frame, like it's a couple years out. You have this big demand. You don't have a lot of history on those. I'm something. It's 115 meters.
1: Just because that's your break even point doesn't mean that you're definitely going to get to that point. I mean, I, I know that definitely in in the past, you know like it's really it's a matter of prestige as well. these really big turbines, especially um y- you know in the past, people have really wanted to have the world's biggest turbine, the world's longest blade, and so there have been in the past designs that have been made to mostly just fulfill that p r need to be able to say we have the longest blade in the world and then use that to sell other other um turbines other blades um and so i know that there were projects of really long blades at the time that did not break even you know they wouldn't have made the the volume but either way even if you're only making a single test blade even you still need a fair amount of commitment because you need to get that blade uh, mold made you know you need the same mold whether you're making one blade or um a hundred blades or more and then If you then beyond that number, it's a matter of how quickly do you want to pump blades out? Because like for a a shorter blade, you'll usually have um, in a factory a single line, like a single mold spot, um, is going to put out one blade per twenty four hour period, like clockwork. And you know some of the bigger factories um, are are, you know have multiple lines, so they're putting out multiple um, blades each day. Um, but for these really long blades, I, I know when they were, you know, when around 100 metres was new, um, it was certainly the case that it was, you know, not a day per blade. It was, you know, maybe that by the time they got everything dialed in, it was more like a week or two for a blade, presumably in the, you know, decade since we got to that point. It's come come down. But I'd be really surprised if you can make a 115 metre long blade, if you can close one of them every single day from any kind of factory, just because, you know, they're so big laminates are so thick um you know just the time frame for everything um pushes out and you can't necessarily just throw more people onto it to um make the problem smaller so yeah i haven't actually worked in a factory that was making blades of this length so um i'm kind of speculating but I'm going to assume that it takes multiple days for one of these blades to come off. Um, and of course the factories need to be really big. it needs to be obviously more than 115.5 meters long. Um, and then also you've got to think about the blades need to be able to rotate and the um, you know if you've got the normal blade manufacturing process where you make it in two halves like clamshell halves two blade molds um, and then you close one, Um, And also after the blade is finished, uh, when you're repairing it, you need to be able to rotate it so that it's, you know, you can get at all parts of it, um, reach all parts of the blade. So, you know, if you've got a maximum cord, that's five metres, eight metres, whatever it is, um, your roof needs to be a lot higher than that. Um, So, you know, the the buildings are really big. And so if you're having multiple lines, then you're going to end up with huge factories. And like I said before, that you want to place them conveniently to access the port. So it's not like there's just infinite land available. So I think that companies would be a bit more cautious about their scale up plans for a blade of that size compared to, you know, a 50 meter blade, you can just (laughs) just chuck chuck lines in as you feel like it, basically, um, without risking as much.
0: That's my opinion too, Rosemary. I know a couple of months ago, there was a discussion uh, with Vestas had. It was it was some sort of webinar, I think I heard it, or a podcast, where they're talking about building new factories, and each factory is about $500 million. Like, wow, that's a huge investment if you've already put all the money into certifi- certifying a, a new wind turbine to start then putting literally billions of dollars down around the world to make this new machine that's a huge risk. And Phil, I, I don't, is there a projected ROI on this? There, there must be a number somewhere. I haven't seen anything published by Vestas, but you would think it, you would like to get your money back as soon as you can. But like Rosemary points out, the scale of this makes it hard.
2: Yeah. And what also complicates it, Alan, is what we've just been kind of talking about. As Rosemary's indicated, you you aren't you're going to get a point of diminishing returns where you can't just throw more money and more people at Uh, the factories you know as i was indicating before like yeah you can build multiple factories you can build multiple lines but at the end of the day you know your roi is ultimately determined by whether or not you have a firm enough order book to make the capital commitment to do the factory and then you can actually deliver on um that order book with the level of quality that you need to because if you end up doing a ton of blades and then there's a lot of rework um, because maybe the factory you have in Taiwan or Australia isn't this, you know, performing at the same level of quality as the Danish factory or whatever. Um, you know, there therein lies the problem of you're gonna. I mean, that, that's a pretty that's a pretty big thing to blow. Like if you don't get that right, you know, and you have to start the blade over from scratch or something potentially. I mean. You know, you could, you're talking about scrapping, you know, blades that are a million and a half plus, two million each.
0: Maybe Vestas will get smart and acquire loop and just send Rosemary to the different factories to, to make sure they're built right. <laughs> Somebody's got to do
3: it.
1: I'll wait for that call.
3: Oh, no, the Vest. we'll put a Vestas factory in Australia. Oh, that's true. Right
0: down the road, right in Canberra. There you go. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind, at PESwind.com.
3: So there's an article this, this uh, quarter here in PES Wind Magazine about the company Bardex. So Bardex provides engineering solutions for offshore wind, including heavy lifting, installation, and operations. Now, Bardex's past is much like a lot of the existing large companies coming into the offshore wind space is they've done a lot of stuff in oil and gas. So they know their way around ports. They know their way around shipyards. They know they're they know quayside operations. And when you read this is an interesting one for everybody getting in offshore that's not been in there before. Is spelled quayside is so, spelt Q-U-A-Y-S-I-D-E. So if you hear someone say quayside, that's what they're that's what they're referring to. It took me like three years to figure that out when I got into oil and gas. Joel, it's not quay, it's not quayside. I've been doing it wrong all these years. So so Bardex is in the in the magazine this month and they're saying a lot of things that we've been talking about in the podcast for the last few years. So there's a knowledge that exists out in the world and in the in the industrial world that can be transferred, right? So when you're talking offshore wind, a lot of the companies that are, you know, very good at it, the Demes and like Seaway 7 and some of these other ones doing large installs, they st- got their start. They know their how their operations, they know how to do heavy lifts offshore. They know how to do construction offshore because of oil and gas and the other project that they've been involved in. So Bardex is taking that same, those same uh, knowledge that they've built in how to make port facilities, port and shipyard facilities and manufacturing facilities uh, optimized, right? Because there's a lot of people that um you know earlier off air we were talking about building new port facilities over in california for some of this floating offshore wind well the port facilities in california and on the east coast of the united states they're not ready for these things right they're not prepared they're not those those port facilities are not built to have big jackets uh manufactured there welded up there coated there or loaded onto barges or or if it's a you know floating offshore wind so Build it, you know. You're welding up facility or the the actual structures on land. and Then you have to launch them, and then you have to basically tugboat them out through, you know, what may be a shipping channel or something of this sort. And those facilities and the people that are around them just aren't they're not used to it. So Bardex has got some some uh, cool lifting technology and some other knowledge around consulting for making these facilities. Um, you know uh lean manufacturing processes standardizing how you do things um and and having simulation tools to put these things in place to make it easier to develop uh offshore wind farms because that development doesn't have a lot of that development that does not happen out at sea that development happens on land and then there's that transition to the ships or to being towed out and then um moored or we're talking if we're talking floating wind then it, then they have to be moored anchored all these other good things um, and those are ancillary uh, activities that you don't think about when you think about offshore wind. People think, okay, offshore wind, yeah, someone's building it. It's like when we talked about uh, Ridgeway rock bags. Like, what are rock bags? Why do we need these? Right? There's there's so many ancillary parts of this offshore wind play that people don't realize. Um, and Bardex is they're um, they're a really good resource uh, within that industry because, or or as this industry kicks off, because they've done it before. They know how to build keyside facilities. And uh, make sure they're optimized to work. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that, check them out. Uh, PES Wind Magazine for this quarter, uh, is, and is the company Bardex B A
0: R D E X. Staying on the offshore theme, the Port of Long Beach has unveiled a new massive four point seven billion dollars billion with a B offshore wind turbine assembly complex that will be known as Pier Wind. It'll it's going to be a four hundred acre terminal built on newly dredged land. <laughs> Uh, where they can put these massive uh, wind turbines at. Uh, now, this all has to be developed and built and permitted, which is going to take, obviously, several years. Uh, it, they're, it's so big that they're going to build like a 30-acre transportation corridor with four lanes uh, so they, uh, they can get the trucks in and out to leave parts there. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a huge endeavor. Uh, and they're, they're expecting to get some federal money to help with the cost of it. Uh, but we're talking about somewhere in 2027 where they're going to kick it off and hopefully be done about four years later, 2031. This is a long-term project and very complicated. And this is out in Phil's territory in California. Phil, it, obviously there's a lot of players along that west coast of the U.S. that want to be involved in offshore wind. Long Beach obviously is a major port in the United States, period. It looks like they're trying to flex their muscles a little bit and just push everybody out of the port world
2: um, for offshore wind. Potentially, yes. If if this thing actually goes through and gets built the way they're designing it, um, it will be— I mean, even though Humboldt is, is going to happen um, with a, a different consortium, of course, uh, for the Northern California um, uh, lease areas that have already been uh, auctioned. Uh, Long Beach could end up serving certainly the Morro Bay sites and anything throughout um, the West Coast um, of of the U.S. and and theoretically even Mexico if they if they ended up um, you know ever doing anything down there. Um, now, as you said, they're going to have to dredge, and as anybody who lives in the Northeast knows about dredging. Uh, it's not easy to get it environmentally permitted. This is a monstrous thing that has to be dredged, and I'm concerned that the, you know, the the kind of environmental powers that be out here in California may end up having to scale this back a bit. Um, so right now it's a $4.7 billion, you know, massive port, We'll see what we end up with by 2027 if that's even when they're going to be able to start. Um, I'm imagining people coming out of the woodwork to try and oppose it. Uh, certainly, the shipping companies aren't going to be too happy because something that's this big taking up a chunk of space in the shipping lanes um, you know is is not going to excite uh you know the 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 vessel operators and everything. Um, uh, but the good news for offshore wind is again, if they can get this to happen, you know, this certainly serves the needs of, um, you know, the, the offshore wind community as we were talking about earlier, you know, with, with the Vestas V 236. I mean, if you're going to build factories, you need substantial acreage to be able to do this. This type of port facility will have the acreage to be able to accommodate that, um, you know, on-site manufacturing and keyside assembly. Uh, notice, I didn't say quayside. So, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the the reality with this is, it's got a lot of potential. There have been some other um, proposals. There's a, a private uh, company that's trying to say, well, well, we should just install a temporary floating uh, dock uh, up near Morro Bay to be able to service that. Only the problem with that is, I mean, it's conceptually it's a good idea. The problem is that the people don't want it up there. They're they're like largely objecting to anything, even like the the um service port that's gonna have to be, you know, installed and upgraded in Morro in Bay, um, where it's at this point just kind of a, a small kind of fishing uh you know town. Um there's already a lot of locals that are interested in getting revenue associated with wind energy, but they don't want the infrastructure, uh, anywhere in their backyard. So, you know, Port of Long Beach kind of solves that, that issue. Um, so, I mean, all in all, I think if, if they can make this happen, it'll be great. Uh, again, I think the challenge with this is, are they going to be able to get everything that they want? Um, or is this going to end up having to be redesigned and scaled back a little bit based on the, envir- the environmental concerns um, that are likely to end up driving this the conversation about this port uh, extension and precisely where it goes, how big it is, etc. Uh,
3: so one interesting thing there is, uh, like we are talking about just a little bit ago with um, Bardex and, and their knowledge of how to build ports and things. If these are these floaters will come off of uh, out of this port of Long Beach. Floaters are they're going to be large. They're going to be a massive structures that are going to be floated out and when you pull those in a controlled area such as a port of Long Beach, normally you'll have three tugs on them. You'll have you will either have one lead and two tails or two leads and one tail. So that's a operation. And then a an operation also includes uh you know sometimes there's troll boats, basically to keep everybody at at bay and stuff. so <clears throat> the long port of Long Beach, as well, and I'm just thinking about this out loud, is one of the most or probably the busiest port in North America because of all the all the go- goods that are coming into the United States from uh, the APAC region through there through that port. So you're now now, if you have that there, now I'm not, I'm not saying this is, a, this is not a stop or anything. This is not even really probably a hurdle, but you're going to complicate a lot of the marine traffic around the port of Long Beach uh, by having this here, there, because I mean, I'm looking at the uh, Marinetraffic.com, which tracks all the AIS system of all the large vessels in the world, and there's got to be a hundred vessels already between Newport and Long Beach uh, sitting there as, I, as we're talking, or more. So it's just another another wrinkle in the development of this.
0: I think traffic on the ground is going to be even worse, right? The amount of truck traffic and especially moving big blades and big tower sections into that port is beyond what they typically do now, right? Which is mostly containers, which is pretty quick in and out. Moving big things in and out of there is going to be a problem. But again, most of that stuff
2: would be either built on site or built in China, let's say, and then shipped over. So the the land based infrastructure that they're talking about is really just trucking in raw materials, which you can usually do on flatbeds or you know cargo container sized stuff. So
0: I, mm, we'll see. This this is going to be a really good economic experiment, right? to figure out how to, to keep the cost down and yet get these things made.
2: Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech
0: Newsletter at
2: weatherguardwind.com news.
0: The Nordics Group is currently in the process of installing its first N163 5X turbines in northern Finland. Uh, and that particular wind farm is going to have a new tower design. It's the it's Nordex's first in-house developed hybrid concrete and steel tower with a hub height of 168 meters. Joel, oh, that's pretty tall, uh, man. Uh, the the tower design draws on Nordex Group's expertise gained from designing and producing concrete towers in various locations. So. It It's made in segments, uh, and then each up to about 20 meters long, and then they stack these segments up and bolt them all together and put the the turbine on top of it. Uh, it sounds like Nordic's going to keep going down this concrete uh, tower approach because they've been doing it for a long time. You know, GE's been playing around with it a little bit. I mean, they've, they are working with a 3D uh, concrete printing company. They've been doing some work out in New York State on it. Uh, but Nordex is really involved in the in the concrete tower and the segment of tower. Uh, I guess just get h- h- higher hub heights, right? I mean that, that's the whole point of the concrete tower is to get you higher up in the air to get to better winds. But you know they've had some issues was it earlier this year, Joel, where they've had some uh, concrete towers that had issues and had to be inspected. There was a lot of drone inspection going on and a lot of hubbub over in Europe about what the outcome of that was. But it seems like they're really invested in concrete towers. And I, I, is it going to be the future? I know Rosemary doesn't like it from the CO2 perspective, but is is it the approach?
3: I think that the one thing that they're, of course, you're getting up, up into the higher winds of the hybrid tower approach. Being 168 meter hub height is a game changer for wind resource, right? But the other the other advantage here too is now you're taking control of your supply chain because otherwise your supply chain is steel from a lot of times india or south korea or somewhere else overseas depending on where you are in the world and you're building turbines but when you take you're taking a little bit more control of it of course there's steel in these turbines but it's steel rebar instead of steel towers so it's a lot less steel and it's a lot uh, lower quality steel to be honest with you um, so you're taking control of your supply chain by shifting gears to do this and that will, might make construction, uh, cheaper in remote areas as well, such as, you know, like, um, being in Northern Finland, or if you're going to a place that doesn't have good port facilities where it's easy to bring in uh, large tower sections, it might be easier to build them with concrete on, 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 uh, on site.
0: Well, I, evidently there's a second effect to making concrete towers is that you can put data centers in them. Uh, Windcores over in Germany is is uh, taking this approach, uh, I, I guess in Germany, and Phil, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but in Germany, they intend to put a lot of wind turbines up, but the grid can't handle it. That's the same, same problem having the United States, by the way. Uh, but So they have these wind parks where they can't drive all the energy onto the grid, so some of that energy doesn't get used. And now in comes a company called Windcores to put data centers in the bases of these turbines. So they got the racks and the computer stuff all jammed inside these these bases, and I guess it makes sense right it's it they're averaging almost ninety percent of the data data center power comes directly from the host turbine that seems like a slam dunk right yeah it's it's a
2: really great idea actually, and like you mentioned the the reason for this is that if you're in um, a market environment where you're kind of constrained on upgrading your substation facilities. Um, a lot of the repowering that's happening in Germany, you're taking out, you know, kilowatt-sized turbines and you're replacing it with multi-megawatt-sized turbines uh, that, frankly, do indeed have, you know, physical space in the the base of the tower to be able to actually put these rack-mount servers in there. Um, and the fact that you've got your load you know, literally as, as close as in physical proximity as it could possibly be, uh, to the power generation. I mean, it's, you're cutting down on transmission losses, um, which is reducing, you know, copper that, that needs to be mined and, uh, or otherwise utilized. Um, so you're, you're in, in effect, you're reducing CO2, you're increasing efficiency, um, and, you know, you're, you're addressing that uh, grid constraint issue as well by, you know, instead of just throwing power into a resistor bank and burning it off when you need to curtail, you're actually putting it to good use by having it power this this data center. I, I frankly love this idea. It's a great one.
0: Isn't one of the issues with data centers is the temperature and that they have to temperature control that space because the servers get so hot? How, are they managing that the same way? Or is the turbine just? They'd have to have some sort of environmental control system in the base of the turbine, right? Yeah, but you got power for it now. Yeah, there are humidifiers. Well, yeah, you've
2: got that, but there are humidifiers and and other fans and things that that definitely need to go um, and be installed. But if you're familiar with some of the OEMs that have done, um, you know, wind turbines in like desert areas. Um, I'm thinking in places like Chile or um, I think even in Australia, maybe Rosemary knows, um, but they've actually put like heat sinks on the outside of the turbines. Uh, certainly turbines, some of the turbines in like Jordan and, and other places in the Middle East. And again, as I mentioned, Chile, um, I know for a fact that they've, they've put some of these uh, external mounted um, heat exchangers on, on the turbine uh, to be able to just cool the turbine. I'm going to imagine you could do something similar with, with this type of application if you had to, um, but the the fact that you've got kind of a, a self-made chimney, as long as you have enough ventilation coming out near the, um, you know, near the yaw bearing, uh, I don't see a problem necessarily with it. You know, yes, you're going to have to have extra fans and, and humidifiers in there, but sounds sounds good.
1: I would have appreciated uh, a data centre in um, the wind turbines that I climbed in Sweden. If the turbine had been off overnight, then they were so freezing cold. You always hope that, you know, if they've been on, then the gearbox is warm and I I will admit that I would I would hang out literally sitting, <laughs> sitting on top of it so that I didn't freeze so badly. But, yeah, a little bit of data ha- centre heat would have been much appreciated.
3: Yeah, there was an interesting um, one that I think it happened, and it's in a port in the UK somewhere, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was Google who took a data center and they sunk it offshore. So they put it in basically a little submarine-type capsule, and this was an experiment they did, and they sunk it offshore because the the biggest cost at these data centers is not the computing. It's cooling them down. And so, of course, water best heat sink you can get so you take all the all the servers inside of this capsule connect them with heat sinks to the wall of the of the uh submersible sink it in the water and um let it sit and the i think the experiment went really well i think they'll probably try to do more of it in the future
2: yeah microsoft also did that in i want to say new zealand um and there there are actually companies that are investigating uh, literally developing that type of technology where if you've got, like, a floating uh, solar farm, you could literally have some type of storage tanks underneath that are not only providing the buoyancy to keep the the racks afloat, um, but then th- those buoyancy tanks can also house your, your data center. Um, so, you know, look forward to that, yeah, look forward to that, and look forward to potentially co-locating... Uh, you know with with fixed or floating offshore wind as well like this uh, i could see this um it's going to necessitate more fiber optic cable connection but i don't see necessarily any problem in with performance again the the fact that they're doing this in places like germany where they have kind of grid constraints is a really good idea because, you know, again, it's it's accomplishing multiple things and and doing it in a CO2-neutral way, um, or potentially even a CO2-beneficial way. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, you're not going to put every, you're not going to put a, a server in every wind turbine moving forward, but, I mean, well, we'll see what happens with data usage and data consumption in the future, but, uh, you know, for for our own uh industry purposes but uh yeah I, again i i love the idea conceptually but this is still kind of an evolving thing at this point so our wind farm of the week
3: is the Brazos wind farm located in Flavana Texas which is up in the north northwest corner of Texas it, and i'm going to say it, it is owned but it will will have been owned by Shell Wind Energy because they're actually in the midst of selling it uh, and another couple of other projects to infrared capital partners. Now, Shell has recently gave some advice in one of their capital markets days not too long ago that they're going to get back to their core their core industries, which is, of course, hydrocarbons. Uh, but they are going to keep the offtake of the Brazos wind farm uh, for Shell. So they're going to keep um, their green initiatives up by taking the power from them, but they're just not going to own and operate it. So this wind farm, the Brazos wind farm, is also in the midst of a repower. They're going to go from 160 of the Mitsubishi 1000As, and if you're in the wind industry, you know exactly what turbine we're talking about, uh, at at this 160 megawatt wind farm. And once they repower, they're going to take those down and put some new technology up. It's going to be 182 megawatts, and the the cost of capital there is about $200 million dollars. So the project is, is currently active. Uh, it was originally commissioned in 2003, but now getting a, a full remake. So
0: uh, the Brazos Wind Farm in Flavana, Texas, you are the wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast we